Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, So That You May Believe, the study of the seven signs Jesus performed in the Gospel of John. Get your Bibles open, chapter 9. We're going to read the first 12 verses to begin our study this morning. The first 12 verses. Begins in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is he. And others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered them, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Shalom and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Lord, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that the eyes of our hearts would be opened to all that you have to say to us today, and that you would use it, you would mold us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So in our current series, we have been looking at the seven signs that, seven signs that Jesus performed that are recorded for us in the Gospel of John. And let's flip over. If you've got your Bibles there, or flip over in your phones to John chapter 20, uh, verse 30 and 31, and we, rec- we read there John's purpose in highlighting, highlighting these signs for us. He starts in verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So why did John point out these signs uh, to us? So that we might believe. Well, believe in who? Believe in what? Well, to believe in Jesus. Who Jesus is, who Jesus, what Jesus came to do, what, what Jesus offers you, and how you can get it. And so what's so interesting is that each of these signs points us to a unique aspect of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And ultimately to Jesus himself, as we will see in our study here today. You know, as you're traveling north on I-25, you know, you're heading towards Longmont, and you see an exit, four miles to Longmont. You don't pull over under the sign and kind of stop and like, well, we're home. You don't even pull over at the exit, right? You, you take the exit, and you go home to Longmont. You know, you haven't arrived The sign is not your destination, and the sign is pointing you to your destination, just like there are multiple signs pointing you to Longmont as you journey along the highway. 
You know, we've been looking at multiple signs that point us to Jesus, the word that became flesh, as John points out to us in the first chapter of this gospel of John. He, Jesus, was the be- in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 11 of chapter 1, it says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive And then going on in verse 12, it says, but to all who did, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. These verses for us this morning are a great starting point, and they set the tone for our study today. We we see the tension there in verse 59 of these verses, in verse 59 of chapter 8 in your Bibles, where we read that they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And then we come to chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man born blind. Those who were through stones, they would not receive the fact that Jesus was who he said he was. The Son of God. The Son of God. But as we will see today, that blind man would receive him and not only have his physical eyes opened, but also his spiritual eyes opened. And so if you're taking notes today, the title of today's message is From Blindness to True Sight. Blindness to True Sight. We're going to cover the whole chapter today. And uh, there are many amazing themes in these 41 verses. But I'll, and I'm not going to be able to get to all of them and cover them all. Uh, nor is it my intention to do that this morning. But I do encourage you to take some time this week and maybe read through this chapter a few more times and just thoroughly and see what the Holy Spirit has to show you and, and say to you uh, this week. But we are going to cover four points today as we go through this account, we go through the story. The first, the first point is the problem. First point is the problem, verses 1 through 5. The second is the miracle, verses 6 through 12. The third is the investigation, verses 13 through 34. And the fourth point will be the decision, verses 35 through 41. So first of all, the problem. Well, we actually have three problems here in these opening verses of this chapter. The first problem is that we have a man who was born blind by no fault of his own, And secondly, we have a lack of compassion on the part of the disciples. And thirdly, we have a lot of bad theology. So let's get acquainted with our main character, the blind man. It would would seem he was not able to work, but he was very well known, probably a regular fixture there at the temple gates where he would beg for money every day. He'd probably never been in the temple Yet, as you three read through this chapter, you're going to find out that he really, he knew his Old Testament Bible rather well. And as we will see in the next verse, he lived with the stigma that his blindness was his fault. It was a result of his sin. Yet through all that, it seems he had a good sense of humor with maybe just a side of sarcasm, as you will see a bit later. Now, interstage left are our disciples. Um, no sense of compassion at all. They just kind of launch into this theological discussion concerning theodicy, which is just a fancy word for the problem of pain, suffering, and evil. Not even acknowledging, really, the man's existence outside of his obvious uh, malady. But Jesus sees him. Jesus sees him. 
You know, in our modern day society, there's so much infrastructure now to accommodate those who can't see. Our society exists so that people can lead, uh, blind people can lead very normal lives and actually, you know, contribute in amazing ways to our everyday existence. We've made a lot of positive strides to this end, but this was not the case in Jesus' day, which reveals our third problem, which was a lot of bad theology. We see there in verse 2 that the disciples ask a question. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, the disciples were not too concerned about fixing the man's situation, but instead discussing why he was the way that he was. But let's not get down on the disciples too much today because they were just kind of working with some well-established assumptions that were taught by the rabbis of their time and, and of course, times past. And the most obvious was the interpretation of Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, which reads like this, You shall not bow down to them, them meaning idols, or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity or sin of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. The rabbis and the teachers of the law believe this to mean that God would punish the offspring of those who sinned, essentially saying that the parents of the blind man or even his grandparents had sinned and now God was punishing him for their sin and the way that God was punishing him was through blindness. But to make sure that they had all of their theological bases covered, the rabbis also taught something called prenatal sin. The idea that you could sin in the womb. Very interesting. But it gets even stranger than that. There were some that who, they, they believed in the pre-existence of souls and the possibility that these pre-existent souls could sin as well. But not to be outdone, there were some that took it even a step further and said, you know, that blindness was punishment for sins that you had yet to commit. So when the disciples asked the question, they were not out of, out of place. Who sinned, this guy or his parents? You know, it was an obvious question for them and their situation and their time. The disciples, the disciples just assumed that there was a direct correlation, direct relationship between personal sin and personal suffering. And if you've read the book of Job, you know that Job's friends used that same line of reasoning in their arguments with Job, you know, about the tragedy that was his life. But I think this brings up a valid question for us to ponder this morning. And that's this. Can tragedy and suffering be the result of sin? Can tragedy and suffering be the result of sin? And I think the answer from a biblical perspective is yes, and it is no. Yes, and it is no. The Bible is clear that we live in a fallen world ravished by the consequences of sin. We see it in mankind. But the Bible says that even creation groans and longs for God to put all things right. Romans 8.21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom, the glory of the children of God. You know, Christians are not immune to the tragedies of a fallen world, whether that is a war, whether that's a natural disaster or sickness or death. You know, the state of our world today cries out, shows us even much, even much more how much we need a Savior. But you know, the Bible also says that we reap what we sow, 
right? And this is what God was telling the disciples there in Exodus chapter 20. If you choose to worship idols and serve them, the generations that follow will bear the consequences of that, God says. And if you studied, if you were with us, I mean, you studied through the books of First and Second Kings with us, you saw the consequences of their disobedience, their bad decisions, and their worship of idols over and over and over and over again until the nation itself didn't even exist anymore and they were carried off into captivity. It was, it was not necessarily the punishment of God, but the consequences of their own actions, their own decisions, and their own sin. For example, you know, if you go off and you have an affair and you break up your marriage, your, your kids will bear to some degree the consequences of your sin as, as they grow up in a broken home. And that experience, of course, is going to have an effect on how they conduct themselves as husbands and wives and fathers and mothers. If you drive drunk and you crash and you lose a leg, you pay a physical price for your sin of drunkenness. But what if you were to kill another driver as a consequence? You have now forced tragedy on others who don't even know you, yet they bear the consequence of your sin. And to our point in this story, one of the biggest causes of blindness is in this time during Jesus' time was from gonorrhea. The baby would pay the price because the mother contracted a venereal disease. Can tragedy and suffering be the result of sin? Again, I think the answer is yes and no. But one thing we can know for sure, and that is God in his sovereignty can be glorified through our suffering. He can redeem it and he can use it to bring us to a greater understanding of his grace and his mercy for us if we will allow him to do it. Maybe that's someone today. Maybe that's you today. There's suffering in your life. And maybe it's the result of your sin. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. What we do know is that Jesus sees you this morning. Jesus, he sees you. Just like he saw this blind man. And he wants to meet you in the midst of that suffering and bring comfort and bring peace. Maybe he will heal you like he did this blind man. Maybe he will not. But as we learned last week, the best thing is to invite Jesus into the boat in the midst of that storm. And in verse 3, as Jesus does so many times, he just blows up their presuppositions. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon on this topic. He says, Jesus will soon show a different way. He won't dwell on the theological puzzle, but on actually helping the man. It is ours not to speculate, but to perform acts of mercy and love according to the tenor of the gospel. Let us then be less inquisitive and more practical, less for cracking doctrinal nuts and more for bringing forth the bread of life to the starving multitudes. Jesus views the, bl the blindness from birth not as a tragedy, but as an opportunity this is not a parental problem. This is not a personal issue. This is God's providence. But before we move on from this point this morning, I just want you to think on the statement for a second, the statement that Jesus just made there in verse 3. At least for me, it begs the question, am I willing to suffer so that the works of God might be displayed in me? Am I willing to suffer so that the works of God might be displayed in me. Well, in theory, 
I am. In theory, I am. I'm always the hero of my own story, right? In theory, I am. But in practice, well, sometimes I wonder, you know. But I just pray. I say, Lord, give me grace. Give me faith for those times, for that moment. I think of those great missionaries like William Carey and Hudson Taylor and Adoniram Judson and David Brainerd and Elizabeth Elliot, who suffered great tragedy in the midst of their most amazing and effective ministries. What about our brothers and sisters in, in the Ukraine right now? The shooting tragedies of these recent weeks, suffering and, and, and tragedy that might be in your life this morning. You know, we can't control the circumstances. We can't control the events, but we can control our response, our own hearts. We can pray, Jesus, be glorified. Jesus, bring peace. Jesus, bring healing. Jesus, bring salvation. Jesus, mold me. Jesus, use me. And just as he's about to heal the blind man, Jesus reminds them there in verse 5, he says, I am the light of the world. The light of the world is about to bring light to the lifelong darkness of this blind man. And this, this was one of the I am statements that we looked at, that we studied in our last series. And it began the whole discussion in chapter 8 that ended in verse 59 with stones being thrown at Jesus. And our story here in chapter 9 and, and chapter 8 it takes place during or just a bit after the Feast of Tabernacles, if you're familiar with that feast. And one of the major parts of the Feast of Tabernacles is the lighting of the lamps, signifying God's leading of the Israelites in the desert uh, at night with the pillar of fire. And Jesus basically tells them, I am that pillar of fire. He was the glory of God leading them in the desert and if, and if they would follow him, they would not walk in darkness. I am the light of the world. This sign that we are looking at here in the ninth chapter of John, it points to a spiritual meaning far beyond the healing of one man. Through this sign, Jesus shows who he is and what he has come to do. He did not come into the world just to bring light to one man, but to give light to the whole world. Through, his, through this sign, Jesus reveals that he was the Son of God and the light of the world. And, as, and he says there in verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And now in the healing, in healing this blind man, Jesus will give us a sign that he is who he says he is. Which brings us to our second point, the miracle. And we pick up our story in verse 6 and verse 7. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. Now we're not going to dwell too much on this, on this particular point because it's just so matter of fact. Spit, mud, eyes, go wash. He went, he came back and he was seeing, done. But I do want you to make a mental note of a couple things that will be important later. One is that he made mud, and two is that he used saliva. There's nothing magical about the elements of this healing. No, no magic mud. There's no magic pool. You know, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, as John chapter 1 told us. 
Now we will see that the healing of this man is going to call, cause no small commotion there with his neighbors and eventually with the religious leaders. As one preacher put it, the transformation in the life of this man had really set the cat among the pigeons in his community. It begins with him having to prove that he was the blind man who used to sit at the temple gates. We'll find out in a few verses why this was so hard for people to believe. It says he kept saying, I am that man. I am that man. They said, no, you're not that man. And he's like, I am that man. No, you, you kind of look like that man. He's like, no, I am that man. And then finally, he got to bring his parents and he says, yep, that's our son. That's him. But let's just interject a little bit of humanity into, our, into the situation here. I'm not, sure, I'm, I'm not sure I can even really imagine. I can try and speculate, but I'm going to try and attempt to understand what this poor man was going through. The greatest thing in his life has just happened. He was blind, and now he can see. He is seeing things, but he has no reference for those things because he has never seen before. Trees, buildings, people, you know? And then he's fighting with his, for his own identity with people he doesn't even recognize. You know, it's like... The voices make sense, but the faces, he's like, that's my neighbor Jacob, but he sounds like him, but that face, voice, face, don't go together. You know, sensory overload. The, imagine the confusion and now his whole experience that he is just trying to start to process himself is going to come under intense scrutiny, which brings us to our third point, the investigation. Now, the investigation is going to have three elements, the rejection of the miracle, the rejection of Jesus, and finally, the rejection of the man himself. Now, in verse 13, we pick up the story with the blind man who can now see he's standing before the Pharisees. We're not told who brought him there, just as they brought him to the Pharisees. Uh, but in verse 14, we might give us, it gives us a clue as to, to why he was there. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. It was a Sabbath day when Jesus had made the mud. Now there's a, still an air of disbelief that this man had actually been healed. But the Pharisees ask him, you know, big commotions going on with the neighbors, you know, what happened and, and all that kind of stuff. And what, what happened to you? How did you get here? And he, he just basically recites, you know, the same simple facts, you know. Met this guy, Jesus, spit on the ground, made mud, stuck it in my eyes, told me to go to the pool of Siloam. I washed my eyes. I could see I came back. That was his story. Simple as that. And the Pharisees respond in a way that we've only come to expect from them. They, they were like, well, we're not sure that we believe that you are actually blind. But whether that is true or not, the fact is that Jesus, this man Jesus, broke the Sabbath because he made mud. Well, making mud is doing work. I don't know if you knew that. Doing work on the Sabbath is breaking God's law, according to the Jewish leaders. But even at this point in the story, if they did believe that Jesus healed this man, that, was, that too was considered breaking the law. You might ask, then, how could healing somebody on the Sabbath be considered breaking the Sabbath law? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> the rabbis taught that, that healing someone might involve walking to them. It might involve carrying things that you might need to heal them. It might involve crushing up herbs that you, that you might need for the healing, any of which constitutes work. 
and therefore is breaking the Sabbath and breaking God's law. They even taught that if you need to go to save someone's life, you're allowed to do that, but you're only allowed to save them enough so that they live to the next day so then you can heal them. I'm not kidding you. This is what they taught. There was even a rabbinical statute specifically prohibiting the spreading of saliva on anyone on the Sabbath. No spitting on the Sabbath because they believed saliva had some kind of medicinal value and they weren't allowed to spread the saliva on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus had done that, so he had broken the Sabbath. So anyway, you cut it. Jesus was in big trouble here. This was not an investigation of a miracle, but a rejection of Jesus. This should have been a celebration, right? This should have been a celebration, but instead it turned into suspicion. It turned into skepticism and accusation. What did Jesus tell us in John chapter 20, verse 31? But these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. They have rejected the signs which has led them to reject Jesus. You know, if you don't believe that that exit sign for Longmont is true, well, you're just going to keep moving on to get to Cheyenne, you know? If you don't take the exit, you don't make it to Longmont, right? And throughout our series in the Gospel of John, the I am statements, and now, now the signs, we have seen an outright rejection of these statements and signs and an ultimate rejection of Jesus himself. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the miracle of the lame man being healed in John chapter 5, if you were with us. And, and the conversation there and the confrontation are eerily similar. If you just want to turn back a few pages there to John chapter 5, Jesus tells him in verse 8 of chapter 5, he says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. And it goes on, now that day was the Sabbath. That should give you a clue. And so, verse 10, so the Jews rejoiced with them and celebrated his healing and this amazing transformation in his life. No, that's not what is written there. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And the man replies, but the man who healed me told me to take up my bed and walk. He healed me. And they're like, no, you took up your bed and walk on the Sabbath. You have broken the Sabbath. Does this exchange sound any way familiar this morning? No celebration, just skepticism, accusation. The signs, the signs, they were missing the signs. And in doing so, they were not reaching the destination, which was Jesus. And Jesus calls them out in verse 39 of chapter 5, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The signs point to me, Jesus said. The signs point to me. And they would have known, they would have read Isaiah 35 many times. And this is what Isaiah 35, starting verse 4 says, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And speaking of the Messiah, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. We have lame men walking. We have blind men seeing. Matthew 21 verse 14 tells us that the blind and lame came to Jesus in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw these wonderful things that he did, they were indignant. 
you're starting to wonder, I'm sure, who are the blind people in our story? I'm sure you're starting to realize the irony in this story. And Jesus will make that exact assertion at the end of chapter 9. If you just go to the end of chapter 9 and starting verse 39, we read, Jesus said, For judgment I came to this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. The Pharisees had closed their eyes to the light of life, the light of the world. But yet they proclaimed that they could see. Blind leading the blind. Jesus says to them, if you would just humble yourself and admit your blindness, you will receive true sight. But because you don't, your guilt remains. And to that point, we see there in verse 18, it says the Jews did not believe that he had received his sight. So they called his parents and they asked his parents three questions. They say, number one, is this your son? Number two, was he born blind? And three, and how does he see? Well, on questions one and two, they seem rather confident. Yes, yep, this is our son. And yeah, he was born blind. But question three, they were a bit reticent to answer. Tells, verse 22 tells us why they were apprehensive about answering that question. And I'm, I'm sure they knew who opened his eyes. And I'm sure he told them that was the man, Jesus. But their place and their standing in the synagogue, they didn't want to get kicked out. That was way too important to them. They too were missing the sign. So they answered, well, we do not know who opened his eyes. Why don't you ask him? Ask him, he, he's old enough. Now, for a second time, they bring this, bring this man who was born blind before the Pharisees and they ask him to defend his claims. And I guess, you know, that phrase, the proof is in the pudding, was not a trending proverb in Hebrew culture yet. You know, I was blind, I can see. I was blind. Just, they didn't get it. This is where things really get interesting. Up until this point, this poor man, you know, has been on the defensive. Probably, you know, he's still processing his situation. He just saw his parents for the first time. Think on that. Isn't that amazing? Trying to understand why he is the center of all this commotion in his community. But going forward, we're going to see that he goes on the offensive. And as I told you before, he was a smart man. He knew his Old Testament Bible. And just, so just very much like a, a police interrogation, they asked, tell us again. Tell us again what happened. Give us the facts. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And our friend who has received his sight replies with the most amazing statement. He says there in verse 25, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is that though I was blind, now I see. Though I was blind, now I see. If you are a Christian here today or you're online in cyberspace somewhere, this is your story. This is your story. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. This is our song. This is our response to the saving grace of Jesus. We were the blind men and the blind women sitting by the road, blind from birth, outside the temple, separated from the presence of God, and Jesus passed by, and he opened your eyes. The Bible speaks of blindness as a metaphor for spiritual ignorance, spiritual darkness, spiritual corrupt, corruptness, the inability for us to know God or to know the truth. 
Isaiah 59 paints a a vivid picture of our spiritual darkness. 59, starting in verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his eye or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And then going on in verse 10, we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor. We are like dead men. But the light of the world has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light today, giving us true sight as we received him and believed in him, believed in Jesus. This is our story. This is your story, my story. We were blind, but now we see. But this miracle of his healing and the beauty of his testimony It does not sway the Pharisees. They press on there in verse 26. What did he do then? What did he do? How did he do it? They're trying to get details from him. He's like, spit, mud, eyes, wash. That's how he did it. You know, but now our friend, he he steps forward with boldness. He realizes that they refuse to address the facts of the case. They they refuse to acknowledge the implications of his healing. I think he sees that the Pharisees here are without answers and he sees how lost they are. And he says there in verse 27, I've already told you, he tells them, and you would not listen. Do you want to be his disciples? You know, maybe it's my inclination to be sarcastic at times, but our friend seems to realize that he has gained the upper hand and he wants to drive his point home with a little bit of taunting. You want to be his disciples as well? I'm sure a bit of back and forth now ensued. I always get those pictures of British Parliament as they get up and yelling at each other. It seems like a massive commotion. And finally, somebody, you know, one of the Pharisees steps forward and says, we don't know where he came from. And our friend basically replies, well, why does that even matter? Why does that matter that you don't know where he came from? Now our friend gets to preach a little bit there with a, a, a bit starting with verse 32, which is kind of, you know, he talks there. This is the whole reason this was an issue. This is, this verse 32 is the whole reason that people had such a hard time with what happened. And he says there in verse 32, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Never, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And he was right. He was right. This had never happened in the history of Israel. As you read the Old Testament, you never see a recorded instance of anybody who was born blind being healed. And the Pharisees did not know what to do with that. The people, his community, did not know what to do with that. And he ends his sermonette with verse 33. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The Pharisees, keepers of the law, God's representatives, the ones who in the eyes of the people knew everything about God, They were brought to their knees and humbled by a man who probably a day before was blind and begging for money at the temple gates. The inconvenience of the facts had blown holes in their worldview. And what was their worldview? What was this? All people who are from God keep the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't keep the Sabbath. Therefore, Jesus is not from God. And the man born blind, he counted with only God can open blind eyes. Jesus opened my eyes, therefore Jesus is from God. Sadly, this response was, 
you know, the response of the Pharisees to this impeccable logic <laughs> was just to rehash the same bad theology that our disciples relied on in verse 2 when they asked their question. They said, well, you were born in sin. You have no place to speak to us. And they kicked him out, it says there in verse 34. They cast him out. They refused to see the signs. And here we get to our fourth and final point, the decision. The decision. The decision is whether to follow the signs to Jesus or to remain in spiritual darkness and corruption. Well, we see the first decision right away starting here in verse 35. It says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus hears that they cast this man out and he goes and he finds him. It's very similar to the story in chapter five. They cast out the lame man. Jesus went and found him. Jesus is the seeking savior. Ezekiel 34, 16 says, I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. John 4, 23. But the hour is coming and is now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And then in John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus, our seeking Savior. I'm so grateful. I'm not sure about you, but I'm grateful that he found me. That when he passed by, he took the time to heal me from my blindness. Blindness to the reality of my own sin. Blindness to the agony of the cross on my behalf. Blindness to the love that the creator of the universe has for me. That he would send Jesus as a propitiation for my sin. When I was rejected, he and cast out, he received me. He gave me the light of life. He gave me purpose. He gave me a true hope. He gave me true sight. He opened my eyes so that I might see the miracle of salvation in my own life. And because of that, I want to join with our friend here. The man who was born by, born by not only received physical sight, but he received spiritual sight. And I want to worship. I want to give thanks. I want to respond to the revelation of God in Christ Jesus in gratefulness and in joy. I was blind, but now I see what is your story this morning? What is your decision? What is your response? Who are you in this story? Who are you in this story? Notice the progression of our friend throughout this, this account, throughout this chapter. In verse 11, to him, Jesus is a man. Verse 17, Jesus has become a prophet. Verse 27, Jesus is now his master and he, and he is his disciple. And then verse 33, Jesus is from God. Verse 35, Jesus is the Son of God. And then verse 38, Jesus is who I trust and Jesus is who I worship. Now, salvation is a journey with many signs along the way. Most of us have reached 
that destination, receiving and believing in Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. Maybe some of you are on that journey still. You see the signs, but you're not ready to take that turn that leads to the feet of Jesus. Well, let me encourage you to do that today. Just like that commotion surrounding our friend in the story, there's going to be a lot of blind people, blind leading the blind, telling you where to go. But only in Jesus do we receive true sight. At the beginning of this chapter, the blind man was in the dark. But at the end of the story, he was the only one in the light, the only one who could truly see, truly see Jesus. Let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.